Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Good morning. Happy Friday Eve. That's how I like to refer to Thursday. So glad that y'all are here with us in Campus Worship this morning. I always like to remind you that we really do put a lot of effort forth in the Office of Spiritual Life in planning the content of Tuesdays and Thursdays. While convocation, the convocation program, and your convocation credits are a requirement for graduation, they're also an incredible opportunity to enrich your experiences at Sanford. And we take that, we don't take that lightly in the invitations we extend to people to be with us during campus worship. On Thursdays, um, we really focus on outer life with Christ. We want to bring people into our community to share from their own experience, strength, and hope um, with Christ, and that they would hopefully offer some inspiration, some instruction to us based on their own individual experiences. And today is no exception. We're excited to have Rebecca Lyons with us. I am so confident that you're going to appreciate um, the witness that she's going to bring, the stories that she will share, that I want to let you know I asked her to bring some copies of her book. Um, her, uh, it's not her most recent book. She's got another book coming out soon. But this book is um, Free Fall to Fly, A Breathtaking Journey Toward a Life of Meaning. And I think as college students, this is a very relevant topic of consideration and conversation for you. A big part of your effort while you're here is to try to understand what is um, the meaning of your life and how are you going to find meaningful expression in the world of your own gifts, of your own purpose. So I have no doubt that Rebecca will be um, a relevant voice in that ongoing conversation today. And you're likely going to want to think more about the things that she shares today and talk with friends and um, she's got copies of her book available. We'll be up here at the front afterwards. She's giving you the special college student price of $15. Um, so you can find us up at the front today after the service. If you want to talk with her briefly, get a copy of her book. She'll sign it for you. Um, you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. So glad that you're here. I believe that there is something good in store for you. This morning we have um, Adele Fontenot, a freshman from Louisiana, that's going to actually introduce our speaker then a short video is going to play, and Rebecca will take the stage to share with us. Good morning. Um, on behalf of the Office of Spiritual Life and the Office of Leadership and Involvement, I welcome you to today's convocation with guest speaker, Rebecca Lyons. Rebecca is the author of Free Fall to Fly, a breathtaking journey toward a life of meaning. She is a mother of three, wife of one, and dog walker of two living in Franklin, Tennessee. She's an old soul with a contemporary, honest voice who puts a new face on the struggles of women's face as they seek to live a life of meaning. Through emotive writing and speaking, Rebecca reveals her own battles to overcome anxiety, depression, and consumer impulses, challenging women to discover and boldly pursue the calling God has for them. As a self-confessed mess, Rebecca wears her heart on her sleeve, a benefit to friends and readers alike. Alongside her husband, Gabe, Rebecca serves as a co-founder of Q Ideas and founder of Q Women, a nonprofit organization that helps Christian leaders winsomely engage in culture. Her favorite pastime is spent with her nose in a book and a discriminating cup of coffee in hand. Join me in welcoming Rebecca Lyons.
We'll all have a moment where we're faced with a decision to make if we want to risk everything and to jump and to live fully. And once we do, that journey and that spiral will actually teach us more about ourselves than we would have ever known if we'd played it safe. As women, when we take on all these roles and all these responsibilities, we lose sight of what makes us uniquely us. The last few years, I just began to question, is this the rest of my life? There was this underlining angst that just kept asking, is there something more? Often it feels indulgent to say, why am I here? Does my life matter? Does my life have meaning? But it's actually just giving worthiness to the creation that God gave all of us. We look in the mirror and we wonder, have we missed this? Do we have calling in our own lives? Will we find it? Is it really there? But we'll never know. We'll never really see the fullness of what God intended if we stay safe. Because we all need a free fall to teach us how to fly. Hello, hello. Are you guys awake? I hear nothing. Are you awake? They told me, they're like, you guys might be a tough crowd. I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to work really hard with them. Um, I'm glad to be here. So I'm just going to keep going, you guys. And you'll be like, please stop. No, seriously. Okay. It's February 2014. It's the world. All right. Good. The ice is broken. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, so... I'm a little loud. Is that too loud for everybody? Is that okay? Okay, um, so in the year 2000, Parker Palmer wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak. Has anyone read this book? It's okay. It, 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 it might be older than some of you. <laughs> you guys might have been toddlers uh, when it came out. I was about a decade late to the party reading this book, but the idea when it was given to me was in the first three pages, he quotes the poem by William Wallace, and it's called Ask Me. And the essential question of this poem is, is the life I lead currently the life that longs to live in me? Is my normal every day going out, coming, out, coming home, uh, is that reflect this inner life that was prepared for me? And so when I read this uh, for the first time, I was in like a midlife moment. And my life looked a lot like Target returns and Chick-fil-A playdates and diapers and Cheerios and poop. So there was that. And I had a hard time reconciling. Uh, I was one who marched off to college, you know, 18, ready to charge hell with a water pistol. You know, dreams and, and ideas and this kind of like the world was my oyster and I was just ready to kind of tackle it head on. And then two decades later, when I'm reading this poem and I'm asking these questions, there's a sense of lostness that settles in. You know, you've got toddlers, uh, you had a career, you planned to work, and then everything changed for me when I turned 26. I'm a firstborn type A control freak. Is there anyone else? Firstborn, no control freaks in the room. You guys are so chill. You're so chill. I love it. Um, 
so when I grew up, I was affirmed by what I did. I don't know uh, if this resonates for you guys, but you would lean into things like striving and perfectionism. And when you did a good job, you got kind of that pat on the back. And when you didn't, then, you know, the crickets were there. And you kind of identified your worth with how much you could do. And so this looked like my trajectory. It was what I was used to. It's kind of, I, I just leaned into it. It was my comfort zone. And um, at 26, I, uh, I was pregnant with my firstborn. And at 39 weeks, I go in and I ask the doctor, I said, do you do ultrasounds at the, at the end? And they say, not unless you're unusually large or small. Well, at this point, my face was swollen beyond the size of my stomach. And I knew that, you know, at some point you want to look pregnant. You know, when people are like, you're so small. You're like, no, actually, there's a baby in there. We should be gaining weight at this point. So they did an ultrasound and they kind of quickly hush-hushed and and said, we're going to send you to the hospital because they want to do a level two and they can read these things better. And I was like, this is not good. I'm trying to test them going, let's schedule next week's. And they're like, let's wait and see. And so I knew that something was desperately wrong, but yet they were not going to, you know, let me in on that secret yet. So I call my husband frantic and we go down to Northside Hospital and we wait for what seems like hours in the, um, the baby factory is what they call it in Atlanta. Um, and we waited, and we finally got that level two ultrasound, and they looked at me, and they said, your baby's four and a half pounds, full term, you have no fluid, uh, you're having this baby today. He's in a failure to thrive situation. So being one that grew up pretty healthy and felt great throughout the pregnancy and never really thought too much about any danger or risk, I kind of go into panic mode. And so they take me into the, the labor and delivery room, and they're trying to put a monitor on my stomach, and when I'm not a doctor, but when I hear a heart rate going, I'm like, okay, um, excuse me, is that the heart? <laughs> and they said yes, and I said, can we, can we go ahead and get this done? Like, what are we waiting for? The baby needs to be on an IV and everything. So, so they do, um, they wheel me in and tap my stomach, and I say, excuse me again, did you just tap my stomach? And they said yes, and I said, well, I felt that and you're about to cut it open, so maybe we should pause for a minute. Ultrasound takes, um, I'm sorry, an epidural takes about 20 minutes to set in, and we didn't have that much time. So then they give me another one. I don't know. It wasn't protocol to do this. So uh, this is going to be kind of a quick OB lesson for you guys way in advance. Um, you'll probably be like, great, thanks for that. I'm going to wait a little bit longer before I have a family. Um, so you're supposed to be numb from here down. Just gonna, guys, just lean in. You know, eventually you're gonna know all this stuff. So I'm gonna give you a little heads up in advance. You're gonna be numb from here down, and that's when it takes the time and it gets you good and numb. And then the doctor has to cut you open. It's very exciting, right? Well, the second one they give you, which is never supposed to be given, uh, they wheel me into the operating room. I'm good and numb. I'm good and numb now. They cut me open, they're doing the thing. My husband's reading the Bible over me with like a curtain and trying to like pat my head like, you know, a dog, like just to make sure everything's like hushed tones and whispers and I'm trying to not lose it. Um, they get Cade out, Cade Christian Lyons, our firstborn. And right about that time, that second epidural goes up, okay? You're supposed to be numb here down, but no, it's going up and this. And I'm thinking like, my lungs are shutting down, I, uh, I feel paralyzed, but my brain's still working, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna die right here on this table while everyone's taking care of Cade. So I'm panicking, and I'm thinking, well, I don't wanna speak that, like, that's negative. I'm not gonna speak death into existence. And then I wait like another three seconds, I'm like, hey, if you're gonna die, 
on an operating room table in a hospital surrounded by doctors, you should probably warn someone. So thankfully, <laughs> finally I find my voice and I'm like, I'm dying. And my husband, who's really brilliant, looks at the doctor and he's like, is this normal? Um, and the doctor, who's really great and very frustrating, <laughs> leans over me and he says, if you stop breathing, we can breathe for you. I was like, that's not quite the reassurance I was looking for. Um, if only I could have lifted my middle finger, but no. That was not going to happen that day. So, so they get Cade. I can't, they whisk him away to the transition nursery. I'm good and numb for a good 48 hours, you guys. They wheel me into my own room. I never really got to hold my son. And about uh, 1 in the morning, he was born around 6 p.m., so six hours later, uh, seven hours later, he, uh, the doctor comes through the hallway, and I see a light, but it's not the angel. And he just says, hey, we've been checking out your son, and uh, we see signs of Down syndrome in your baby. I was like, huh. I think meds are good for a moment like that. My husband and I look at each other, and then we look at the doctor, and then we look at each other, and then we go back to sleep. And the next morning I woke up, and I get in a wheelchair because I still can't feel my legs, and they wheel me down to the floor below, and I see my little guy, right? Toe head, this big, four pounds. I see his little um, legs, hands and feet, and everything's tiny, and I um, get my arms through so I can just touch him for the first time. And I see these little slits right here. It's a semi-increase. It's kind of an indicator, a first glance of Down syndrome, and... His blue eyes just say, Mom, hey, Mom, are you going to love me for me? Not for what I can do or accomplish and what milestones I can meet so that you feel like you're a good mom. And that was my rude awakening to what unconditional love would look like that didn't require performing or achievement or success. And it was just like God to show me that kind of kindness, my entree into motherhood, to say, Hey, the life you thought that you were going to ordain and the life that you thought you were going to look like and the vision you had of your child is not at all what I had in store for you. And I remember that first year, the only conversation I had, the only conversation I remember from that first year was with a friend that I'd known since I was five. And I said, we're praying for, for Kate to be whole. And she said, <laughs> she's like, maybe God's version of wholeness and yours look different. And I, I tucked that away. And so when you have a special needs child or a child or anything in your life comes like an interruption, you know, you're, like you're going one way and then something happens and then you're kind of left dazed and confused. There's a little whiplash happening. Uh, but there also is a moment of surrender in it because you're kind of like, hey, we're going rogue. And I don't really have a say in this. So God, just I'm gonna, just going to hang on. And you show me what to do and show me how to be a mother and show me how to learn how to do all these therapies. And I thought I was going to work full time. And by eight months, Cade had eight hours of therapy a week. And even the career side of me, the driven firstborn side of me, was like, okay, this is going to look different. When I'm leading the team and I'm going in the office each week and they know what's going on and I don't, that's probably a sign that I was, I was cheating on both ends. I wasn't leading well at home as a mother and I wasn't leading well in my workspace. So as much as I wanted to be that working mom, I knew that for the season I needed to step back. And so I did. And my husband at the time was leading a, a leadership organization out of Atlanta. At this point, it was this really his only job outside of school. 
he become vice president. He started this conference for young leaders called Catalyst. Uh, we were just, it, in, in all intents and purposes, looking from the outside looking in, it looked like this is the trajectory we're on. This is the life that we've wanted and created. Uh, but Cade comes in the picture and everything changes. So my husband resigns and he has this vision. Um, we, we like went on a vacation to San Diego and he's reading Chuck Colson, right? Um, how now shall we live? And I'm, so he's like, Rebecca, Christians are called to redeem entire cultures, not just individuals. Isn't this awesome? And of course, I look up from reading Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and I'm like, yeah, um, that's great. That'll give you a little picture of our um, relationship. And, and he just got so excited about the fact that our faith doesn't seem relevant in our moment, but how do we uh, thoughtfully lead in the cultural tensions of our time, in conversations that the church is unwilling to have. And so we started this thing called Q, and we had our first gathering in, at the Tabernacle in Atlanta. And this would have been, goodness, 13 years ago. And uh, a pastor came who was planning churches in Manhattan, and he said, hey, I have a bunch of young kids and college students in early 20s that are moving to the city, and they're trying to be like salt and light in New York City, of course. And Everything you're saying, I want them to hear. So come up and share the vision of Q. Q is, stands for questions. It's the Socratic method, right? That we don't need to hear someone come up and tell everyone all their answers. We want to ask thoughtful, provoking questions that make you think. <laughs> and, and trust that people in the room have something to bring into this conversation. So we would talk about things like Israel-Palestinian conflict, right? Um, objectification of women, adoption of technology. Uh, we talk about, uh, we've done this now. We've talked about gender dysphoria. We've talked about, you know, gay marriage. We've talked about, um, we were just in Denver, so we've talked about marijuana and how it's affected the state for the last three years. Um, we were there on the, on the three-year anniversary. Um, so we would just press into all these things. And so we go to New York um, back in back in the year of when this all began, and Gabe shared on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Chelsea, and by that night, he leans in over coffee. He's like, can you imagine living here? I'm like, no. Had no idea what in the world um, life would look like there. I'm like, where do they buy their groceries? I don't understand. And I had three kids at the time that were four, seven, and nine, and I was very reluctant to this idea of like leaving the suburbs of the South and comfort and what I had thought we had established and begun, but it seemed like life had already gone off the rails, so why not? And so three years later, kicking and screaming, um, we pull into Manhattan with three kids, two toy poodles, and a minivan, which is not cool anywhere, um, but particularly uh, when you're <laughs> moving to New York City. And I thought I was going to, to New York looking for meaning. For me, it was a midlife reset. And uh, that's when that Parker Palmer season r rose in me. And I was like, okay, uh, my youngest is going off to elementary school. I'm, I'm no longer having toddlers at home. I've got this window. I started going back to Parsons School of Design in um, downtown in Soho. And my background was in design. And I was like, okay, we're going to pick back up. Of course, I was like twice the age of everyone else um, in the classes. And four months in, I thought I was going to New York looking for meaning. And it turns out I found surrender instead. And I can tell you today, meaning follows surrender. So often in the world, we want to run after the things we love and chase our dreams. And yet we don't understand that there's a cost required for us to have authority to speak on the things or to walk out the, the journey or the story that God has put in us. And so four months in, I have my first panic attack. Um, you know, I'm one 
of 8 million people in the span of 11 miles. And I remember coming up the subway one night, and, you know, it, in the holiday season where it's like the trains are so crowded, and then, the, like, the tourists come in, and they have 18 more bags, and they really insist that they can squeeze in with you. And you're like, no, 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 no. And, um, and I just remember clawing the doors open and, like, almost watching myself from the outside, like, throwing off my scarf and my jacket and my coffee, and I'm just like trying to reopen a subway door. Don't do that. It doesn't work. Um, and finding myself kind of at this low moment. I was afraid to get on a plane, a train, um, elevator, subway, and a crowd. Has anyone been to New York? <laughs> it's obviously impossible to avoid those things. So here I am dealing with something in a season where I've been planted with something, and I'm having to ask these questions of lostness and purposelessness. And so this lasts for about 12 months, and um, I kind of had this new thing where I was crippled. I don't know how many in this room have struggled with anxiety, but when anxiety gets to the point of panic attacks, uh, the idea around a panic attack is that your adrenaline is so high and your heart is pumping so fast and you can't make sense of it. So you go to the doctor because you think, you know, you're having chest pains. And they're like, no, everything's fine. And, and, and then, yeah, you have trouble breathing. There's like a heaviness on your chest, almost like a weight, like, like an elephant sitting on your chest. And you're like, you're just like having a normal conversation with someone, but you're trying so hard just to catch your breath. And um, so this kind of versions of this goes, and it was no longer, after about a year, and it was no longer confined to tight spaces and claustrophobic moments of feeling trapped, it would be in the park or in my bed when I wake up in the middle of the night and just the smothering. And so finally, on September 20th of 2011, I remember sitting in my bed at 3 a.m. like so many nights before. And I'm having this attack and I'm like, you know, can't speak and I'm grabbing my husband's arm and he wakes and he knows the drill by now. He'll just get up and he'll start praying and in the middle of a prayer, like, it was just crazy because I think God has an appointed time for everything in our lives and we think it's like, oh, wow, randomly today is the day that something shifted. Um, but yet he looked down and the spirit of God came on me and I lifted my hand and I said, rescue me. I just found my voice. I found my voice in the middle of a panic attack, and I said, rescue me, deliver me. I cannot do this without you. And in that moment, in the middle of a panic attack, my body just broke, flat on the bed, and I'm just laying there. And there might be a name for this in Pentecostal circles, but I'm a Baptist girl, and I have no idea what's going on. I'm just laying here. <laughs> and the only thing that's happening, like, Gabe, did you see that? And he's like, you stopped. And I remember the next morning, like, stepping out of my apartment, kind of like, like, did it take? I don't even know what's going on. Like, what, what, what is this? And I started, um, the thing about when you're sick with anything, you only see in. You see yourself. You see your brokenness. You become very self-consumed with all that is wrong with yourself. <laughs> it's very self-focused. But when you're well... The scales fall from your eyes and you begin to see others. And that next day, I remember looking around and looking around the city, and I started to see women and men walking the streets just like me, struggling with the same anxiety, struggling with the same depression, struggling with the same life questions. And I began to read the work of Viktor Frankl. Has anybody read 
Man Search for Meaning. Please, somebody raise your hand. Okay, if not, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, okay? He wrote this in the 40s. He's a Holocaust survivor, a Jewish man who treated suicide patients before the war. And he did such a good job with his, tr his work that the Germans offered him a work visa to the U.S. so he could escape being arrested and going to the concentration camps. But because he was so loyal to his family and he knew his parents would still be arrested, he let his visa run out and he said, um, I'm, I'm going to go. And the idea, and so he's like this third school of thought in the psychiatric world where Freud talked about the will to pleasure and Adler talked about the will to power. Frankel talked about the will to meaning. He said we were made for meaning. He talked about uh, from his faith that we were created for something to serve something. And he said meaning is found in three things. Your love, who you love. Who loves you back, your work, what you do, what you put your hands to, how you spend your days. And the third is your bravery and suffering. There's a meaning there. And so he does get arrested. He's in four concentration camps in three years. And he, uh, he got to use, while his manuscripts were stolen and the books he was written were all stolen, he would have scraps of paper and kind of hide them and write notes of what he was watching happen. Um, even in, even in all these camps, how the capos, who were the Jews, who would turn on their own, and they would sometimes be the most destructive. And he talked about the breadth of man, the, like the range of what man can be from, from, from sacred to, to evil. And he said the same man who can create um, a gas chamber is also a man who can walk into that gas chamber with his head held high and a Jewish prayer on his lips. So as you can imagine, his work was amazing. And he, because he was so focused on mental health, I really dug in. And he said this. He said, the root of anxiety is unfulfilled responsibility, which means you know you're made for something and you're not doing it. And when I heard that, I sat back and I said, this was a season of lostness for me, a season of purposelessness for me, a season of going, okay, now what? Here we are. And those, and those, that refrain of William Wallace's poem kind of haunted me. And so I dug into more, you know, Buchner talks about calling, and he says, you know, your deep gladness is, is where, calling is where your deep gladness and the world's deep, deep hunger meet. I like to say calling is where your talents and your burdens collide. When I was 33, my mom was pushing my second child on a swing, and she was like, I always thought you'd write. And I'm like, that would have been super helpful in college when I was picking a major. Because I just never heard that. I never considered it. Um, I grew up, you know, reading a ton. We didn't have a TV until I was in eighth grade. And so I read, you know, 62 Nancy Drew books in fourth grade alone because, um, you know, I was bored. I was bored. And my mom was a teacher after school. And what, what else to do other than go to the library? And so I just read and read and read. And now I, today I know that readers make writers, whether or not you think that or understand that. Like when you learn about life through the power of story and you, you become a linear thinker. And so you write in the order of the way things happen. And that's how you, you can write memoir. You can write prescriptive story because that's, what, that's the way you've taken in information your whole life. So... Um, so I'm thinking, okay, if that's a birthright gift or, or something that just comes natural for me, um, then there's, so that's this idea of talent, right? You know, in Psalm 39, God says, 
hey, when my frame was not hidden from you when you were made in the secret place. Um, your eyes saw my unformed body, and all your days were ordained for me before one of them began. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your works were wonderful. It's this, it's this love letter between, between uh, David and the father of how, how we are all chosen, appointed, and set apart with such intention. Like God's creation is that vast that no two of us look alike. And so when you think about in our mother's womb, the DNA that he put in us was so that we would fulfill something that no one else could do. And he would give us these, these birthright gifts. And so Parker Palmer in that same book book said, we all come into this world with birthright gifts. And early on, we abandon them or others disabuse them. But if we are aware and awake and able to admit our loss, we'll spend the second half of our lives recovering the gifts we've always possessed. And I look at you guys, you're in college, you're in this like crossroads of life. You're, you have a moment right now. I think if I had heard some of the things that took me 20 more years to understand, to unpack what is my birthright gift? What is something that I offer the world that no one else offers? What is something that God just, um, in a way to know this is like um, when you're 8, 9, and 10, what did you do that you just couldn't stop doing that drove your parents crazy, uh, that was effortless for you? Um, and when some people would look at you, they'd say, how do you do that? You're like, I don't know. It's, it's just like, it's just my thing. Um, that's one way to kind of tap into like a birthright gift. It's something as a kid that you felt freedom to do. You probably felt the most free when you were doing it. And it required the least amount of work. It was just something you enjoyed. So there's something there. Maybe some of you have lost sight of that. Maybe you know what it is and it's really easy to mention. Um, but I do encourage you to kind of dig into that. Like, what is that? And sometimes we're so close to it, we can't see it. So we need others to kind of call that out over us. And so I've led a lot of groups through this idea of like calling of burden, um, of talents and burdens, because sometimes the burden, um, which is much harder than the talent to identify, a burden is identified by the life you lived, the story you uh, walked, the family you were born into. It's the thing that broke your heart. And sometimes the thing that broke your heart, um, at your age, you might like, oh, that hasn't happened to me yet. Like, and that might be the case. Most likely, <laughs> there is a wound that we all have carried of some sort, whether it's dramatic or kind of an everyday thing. Um, but the burden becomes the thing that kind of keeps you up at night. Um, if, if and when a season comes that you're like, this is actually hard. This is the hardest uh, life has ever been. Like, this year has been the worst. Or, or this season has been such a struggle. And, and I'm not sure. This is new for me. I mean, sometimes at your age, to have a season that's been really difficult or painful, it's hard to even know how to approach it because it kind of sneaks up on you. And all of a sudden, you're kind of like, wait a minute. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not equipped for this. Is this the new normal? Um, is, is everything going to always be this hard from now on? Is this what adulting is? And if it is, I don't want it. Um, but this idea of burden is really surfaces, I think, as we enter into adulthood. And we have to ask these larger questions that are not about us, but about the world around us. And so this idea of calling is where these two things collide. So when I, when I got to have this conversation with a counselor in, again, my mid-30s, not, not my early 20s, but my mid-30s, and I said, um, I, if I had to identify my burden, I remember 
watching my father have his first mental breakdown when I was 15. And I remember him sitting in a chair and sobbing for hours and having no language for it. And then I had to go <laughs> straight from that to a band competition for Allstate because I played the trumpet because I'm cool like that. Um, and, and just kind of lock that down, like, like, that's that, and this is this, and I don't know what to do with that, but I'm going to keep going over here, and here I am, two decades later, right? I'm watching my father with bipolar in an assisted living in a bed, and I'm watching my firstborn son, my father and my firstborn son, my firstborn son with Down syndrome, um, an IQ in the 40s, get into bed with my dad, and they talk and engage in a way with each other that I will never be able to do. And I'm sandwiched between that. And I thought, Lord, if you want me to spend whatever days I have left um, yammering on because I was a communication major or writing the words down, um, using those birthright gifts to redeem the thing, the burden that broke my heart, then therein lies calling. And so sometimes we don't pick our calling. We, we really don't pick our calling. God's like, um, if you love God, we have a corporate call, right, to love God and make him known. But within that call, there are such unique and beautiful expressions that are so specific to each of us. And I would encourage you to not worry about what the person next to you is doing. Um, because if it's effortless for them, that doesn't mean that when you try it, it'll be effortless for you. Because you might not have been made for this. You might have been made for something, to press into something um, that's painful, that's actually shaped you and shifted you and changed you. And by that happening, by that pain, by that surrender moment, um, for me, when I said rescue me, that was my surrender. I was like, I cannot live the life of the firstborn type A Rebecca that was just going to say yes and push through to everything. She had kind of died. And the new Rebecca, who was vulnerable and exposed and helpless, you know, sitting with her head down on a curb, not being able to breathe to keep going, finally said, Lord, okay, my life is not my own. It really never was in the first place. We were never made to live for ourselves. So finally it's like, Lord, my life is not my own. And I trust that when you established me in my mother's womb, that you would put a message on my heart and you'd give me a story to fulfill and, and you give me a, a people to even walk alongside with. And so what's so beautiful about this is that survivors, no matter who you are or what your journey has been, um, survivors are the most beautiful people. They are. They're the most beautiful people. Why? Because they have empathy, because they have grace, because they can listen. And more than anything, you know what? Because they've survived, they're really strong. There's someone that you can call and go, hey, um, I think I remember that you used to have faced this or you've suffered this and I'm there right now. Could you share with me or help me or pray with me or walk, like talk to me about this? Um, and then if, you're, if you are a survivor of whatever form, you actually have a radar up. <laughs> like I said, when you're sick, you don't see, but when you're well, you see. And I can honestly say it's been over five years and I've not had a panic attack, praise God. Like, I don't take credit for that. I have nothing to do with it. I don't understand why God does things in the way that he does. But he's just saying he probably knew that I'm a, um, a blabbermouth and if he gave me a story, I'd eventually want to share it. And, and I think of Revelation 12:11, where it says the enemy is bound by two things. It's Christ's blood 
and our story. And I think sometimes Jesus looks at us and he goes, well, I did my part. I did my part. Um, I took death so that you could have freedom. So when are you going to do your part and, and speak of the freedom that I've given you? And so that's going to look so different for each of us. For every single one of us, it's such a unique story, a, a unique narrative, and a neat, unique future. But you guys are in the moment right now where you have, you have the future ahead of you. And many of you in this room are sitting in pain. I'm not naive to this. You are facing things that I've talked about. Um, I have prayed and talked to you the gamut. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, when you start digging into junk, like, you see it all. But here's what I do know, is that whether or not you're in the middle of this right now, God says, hey, are you going to invite me in? First of all, do you believe there's a God? And second of all, do you think that he cares? And if he does, if you think there might be a moment that he does care, are you willing to invite him in? And I think that is the part where, where the rubber meets the road, where we say, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. I don't know that you... That you're, that you're in this with me. I feel alone. I feel lost. And, and what I've learned even in this journey is that, you know, even just the very, like, confession of that is kind of this gateway to intimacy and freedom. Like, it's just this beginning step of crying out in vulnerability and saying, hey, I need you. And, and I, need, I need people around me that can walk this with me. And I need the safety and the permission to be honest. Because here's the thing. You cannot heal what is hidden. This is not possible. And so as long as we're kind of stuffing this down and hiding it away and, and escaping and numbing out, nothing is going to change. It's just not. We, we can get through and we can kind of do this and we can go through to the next day, but we'll look back a year from now and go, nothing got better. And so I encourage you, if there's people in this space that you think, you know, I'm so close to a breakthrough in, in my passion and my purpose. I don't have time to deal with my junk. We'll just kind of table that. And, and I'm just going to keep running after the, the passion and the call that I feel God's put in my heart. Well, I just want to encourage you that this helps inform this. Because it's not just what you do. It's why you do it. And the passion that's going to really activate why you're doing something. What, for me, it's like uh, the brokenness, the gifting is, is a part of redeeming the brokenness. Like we are all restorers. So if we ignore the brokenness, like we don't really have an authority to kind of step into that. But if we do, if we invite it in, we, get, we, get, um, we go through the steps of inviting others in, of revealing what is hidden, of walking into a new way of healing, then we will find... Um, just a new way to walk this out and to encourage others along the way. And so that, I hope that's encouraging. I hope that's helpful. I know calling is such an elusive, huge topic, um, but I just want to encourage you to think through the lens of that. It's where your talents and your burdens collide. So like she mentioned, I'll be around for a little bit. For anyone who wants to talk for a few minutes, I know you have class coming up. Um, but, um, and I know that this is like an optional chapel and you don't have to come to them all, but I appreciate your attention and your time, and I'm really grateful, and thanks for having me. So, thanks. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.